Welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series has been accredited for continuing medical education credit. The American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Information about credit claiming for this and other episodes can be found at education.aaaai.org forward slash podcasts. Credit claiming will be available for one year from the episode's original release date. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Vivian Hernandez Trujillo to today's episode. Dr. Hernandez Trujillo is the Director of the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Nicholas Children's Hospital and works at Allergy and Immunology Care Center of South Florida in Miami Lakes, Florida. She has a long track record of service to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, as well as the Immune Deficiency Foundation. In addition to clinical and research interests surrounding food allergy and anaphylaxis, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo has a strong interest in primary immune deficiency in children with recurrent infections, which is the topic of today's episode. Dr. Hernandez Trujillo serves as a consultant, advisory board member, and speaker for CSL Bearing, and as a consultant and on the advisory board for Shire. I do not have any relevant relationships to disclose. Dr. Hernandez Trujillo, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, and welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here today. Well, I'm, I'm also looking forward to our conversation because this is a topic that you know uh, we hear a lot about, uh, especially as pediatricians and allergists and immunologists. And as a parent and pediatrician, I can attest that young children just seem to constantly have runny noses, congestion, and cough. What would be considered a normal pattern and type of infections for healthy children? So this is an important question that many parents ask, especially at the time of the first visit. And especially during this time of year that we're preparing for back to school and many children will be starting in daycare, it's, it's a very relevant question. So the average child will have eight to 10 respiratory infections per year. And if you round that off, it's about every six weeks. If there's older siblings in the home or if they're in daycare, the number may increase to 10 to 12. And the mean duration may be approximately eight days. I can say that as a pediatrician and parent of twins, when they first went to school, it was every three weeks someone had, you know, they were battling a URI. And upper respiratory infections are not only common, um, I think the red flag and the time to worry would be if every infection requires antibiotic or if the child requires hospitalization. Okay, and we're going to definitely get into that some more. So what you're saying is that we would expect healthy children to essentially be sick almost half the year on average. Does that sound about right? That is a, that's exactly the number. Wow. Um, so, and we expect most of these to be viral ailments. And like, as you mentioned, they're going to be sick for one to two weeks at a time. What are some other factors in the history? You mentioned antibiotics and hospitalization, but when should suspicion be raised that other factors may be contributing? The Immune Deficiency Foundation has um, a campaign really that says, is it, you know, is it just an infection? And 
I like the way that it's characterized because the, the key things to, to really raise a red flag would be, are the infections severe? Are they persistent or unusual? And then the other factors would be, are they recurrent infection? Then obviously, if it runs in the family, that's, those are all kind of red flags that would make us pause and all right, is there something else going on? Is it just not that the child is getting these, you know, frequent, in, which would be normal otherwise in, in a child, especially very young in life that's starting school or, or has just started daycare? And do you think that the pattern of the infections is an important component to consider as well? The pattern and the, the severity, because, an, you know, a recurrent infection that it's a cold and it doesn't complicate into something like asthma or it doesn't lead to an ear infection or a pneumonia. If, if the pattern is that the child has an upper respiratory infection and then every time they're either having an, an ear infection or it results in pneumonia, and then, again, it requires that they're hospitalized, that's where I would be more concerned. Okay. Now, you know, my daughter, she had six episodes of strep throat this past school year, and we were told that once she hit seven, and seven was the cutoff, that's when we would consider removing her tonsils. Can we say that in regards to any number of infections that you know, equals an immune deficiency? Is there some clear cutoff or black and white picture that we can use? We really need more studies to determine cutoffs. I, I can say that the Jeffrey Modell Foundation has what we call the 10 warning signs, and that's used as a guide that has been helpful, but it's not all inclusive. So I'll give you some examples. Um, four to six, excuse me, four or more new ear infections within one year, or two or more serious sinus infections within a year, or two or more months on antibiotics with little effect, two or more pneumonias within a year. For me, I, as a pediatrician, I always step back and I look, is, is this child failing to gain weight? Is it an infant that's just not thriving? Are they having recurrent uh, or deep skin or organ abscesses or persistent thrush, especially beyond a year of age? Needing IV antibiotics for me is, is obviously a red flag, and that's part of the warning signs. Um, and then two or more deep-seated infections, including sepsis. And then obviously, again, we're, we come back to is there a family history, but that's not true in, in every case. So the reality is we need more studies. But if a child has fewer infections than what I said in these warning signs and they're just clinically not thriving, that would be a sign to evaluate their immune system. And as an immunologist, a pediatric immunologist, my threshold is obviously going to be lower. But I think that medical professionals need to just be aware of the possibility and think and consider an immune workup. All right. And you, you touched upon some of the important details within the clinical history to focus on. And I'm, and I'm going to ask you if you're willing to expand upon that a little bit. So how do you take a, a history when you see a new patient who has concerns for recurrent infections? What details about their reported infections do you really delve into and, and what uh, what do you focus on? That's actually a really important question. I think for children especially, as a, as a pediatrician, I'm always looking at their growth parameters, even before I walk in the room. Right? If I have a height and weight, I'm, I want to look at the curve. And if I have the possibility to look at the curve over time from, from their general pediatrician, that's very helpful. Then I'll sit with the family, and then I, I ask about not only infections. We're focusing a lot on recurrent infections today, but if the child is, is thriving or having, for example, are they having recurrent diarrhea, just chronic diarrhea without an explanation? Are they having recurrent um, episodes of thrush or skin lesions that aren't improving that someone may have thought, well, this is eczema, but it's not responding to, to you know, uh, appropriate treatment? 
does the child have, even early in life, children can have autoimmune disease. That's another thing that I would ask specifically while I'm, while I'm um, talking to the family about history. And, and then for me, family history is obviously important, but the child, the child him or herself, is, is the most important. So whether or not, if there's no family history, that doesn't really help. If there is, obviously, that's, that's a more helpful piece of information. But I think by focusing on those, you know, the, those types, and then we, we already mentioned, you know, how many infections, is there a pattern to the infections, do they need antibiotics, do they need more than one course of antibiotics, do they need to have IV antibiotics, have they been hospitalized? Those are all key, key points and elements of the history that we need to obtain. How do you specifically ask about family history? Because I think that's a tricky question. I'm glad you brought that up. But how do you actually phrase that when you ask families? So when I ask about family history, I don't necessarily only ask about primary immune deficiency because the answer is very frequently no. It may be, do you have any children who have, who have died from um, early in life without an explanation or from a severe infection? Do you have any children that have recurrent infections and are frequently in the hospital? Has, is there anyone in the family, because you want to open it up to adults as well, who, who may require you know, antibi- IV antibiotics um, to clear an infection. Those are the types of questions I ask because many people don't understand what a primary immunodeficiency is, and they also may not have the diagnosis. Is there a family member that has recurrent sinusitis and, and pneumonia who just is, is not doing well? And you'd be surprised how many times somebody says, yes, the mom's brother or the, the grandfather. Mm, that's interesting. Those are that's important. great. Yeah, um, thank you for that. And then, you know, how often do you find yourself having to go through um, medical records? Because, uh, you know, as you know, um, parents aren't always the best historians, and maybe some of the important details may be lacking when you try to obtain the history. So uh, do you think that that's an important component of evaluation, especially when you first meet somebody of, you know, going through whether it's admissions or culture data or things like that? Absolutely. And and that's especially if, if you're questioning whether, you know, the the family may may have all the information available to you or, or if they hesitate when you ask the question, asking for records, not only from the pediatrician, yes, but exactly looking at labs that have previously been done, any cultures, so you can see what the organism responsible was. Um, and then obviously, if they've been hospitalized, looking at the details of that hospitalization. So, and we're going to talk about testing in a little bit here, but before we even consider testing, it sounds like you're spending extensive time really going through the important details of the clinical history and medical record. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Now, what do you do when we have these children referred who have already received multiple courses of antibiotics? Um, Does that alone just sort of indicate a more serious underlying condition, or what are some of the more common reasons why you see all these multiple courses of antibiotics being prescribed so often? So this really depends on the clinical scenario. If you have a child, for example, with older siblings or a little one that started daycare recently, they're more likely to have the recurrent upper respiratory infections that can lead to recurrent ear infections. If you have a young child, especially early in life within the first year that required tympanosomy tubes um, because of, of the recurrent ear infections, or if the first infection is very early in life, for example, from four to six months when, when infants are losing antibodies from their mothers um, and the antibodies are decreasing, if their own body is not producing, they're more likely to have an infection. That's when I would be more suspicious of a possible primary immunodeficiency. I think the challenge for us, especially in this day and age, 
you know, we're in a society where parents um, often will ask for antibiotics, and the medical team needs to take the time to explain that it's not always necessary, or it, and it's also not always in the best interest of the patient. We know that overuse leads to resistance, and this is a, a big problem not only for all of us, but for, for you know, your own patient, and, and ex- taking the time to explain that to the parent is very, very important. I'm sure that's challenging, especially when somebody has received antibiotics every time they get an upper respiratory infection. Um, so, like you said, it's important to really figure out the reason why, uh, and you know why kids getting keeps getting prescribed so often. What do you do with patients who have, say, recurrent strep throat, or if it's more urinary tract infections? Are those you know conditions where they receive frequent antibiotics for those that you'd say, oh, maybe this is less likely to be a primary immune deficiency, or where do you kind of characterize those? Recurrent strep is very interesting to me because I think I've helped many families. The recurrent strep may just be that they're in a carrier state and they need they need treatment for that, right? So that's the most common presentation that we see. So frequently, that that's a question that is raised before, you know, like you were talking about your daughter, before that you would obviously just want to be sure that when the child is asymptomatic, not having any problems, that, that you have a negative uh, culture. For urinary tract infections, I might be a little bit less concerned. However, you know, I, I truly listen to the whole history because usually if a child comes in with a history of, of recurrent UTI, for example, and, and there could be parts of the complement pathway that could be involved there, it, they're not very common, but many of our diseases are not common. I think just listening to the whole history and, and eliciting parts of the 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 history and and obviously the physical may not be as helpful in that case but just listening to the whole history and determining where I should be focusing is very very important and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to diagnostics. Great. Okay. Now you you touched upon this earlier about the normal healthy child uh, is expected to have multiple different viral upper respiratory infections throughout the year. That's just a normal expectation of you know life, uh, and that they can have increased frequency based upon attendance at daycare and with siblings and things like that. But let's start to dive into your sort of thought process in differential diagnosis. What are some other comorbid conditions um, that you see contributing to the frequency or duration of infections? When a child presents to me initially, I I like to say I go into the room with an open mind. So I, I try to actually be a general pediatrician and not an allergist immunologist because if I do that, I'm going to close off the possibility of, of really thinking about these other differential um, like diagnoses. So if I have a child that may present with recurrent pneumonia, a few things come to mind. If I know there's they have had talking about reviewing prior studies, if they've had four different chest x-rays and they've had four, you know, four episodes of pneumonia. I want to look at those because I want to know if it's in the same area. So could this be an anatomic problem in the lung? Um, or is it, is it, has it been in different parts of the lung? Uh, I also consider cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis can result in failure to thrive in recurrent infections, especially uh, sinopulmonary infections. So I consider the diagnosis of cystic fibrosis. We have the advantage of newborn screening, but not all patients are diagnosed with newborn screening. Um, also, ciliary dysfunction. We've, we've helped several families, and, and ciliary dysfunction can be primary or secondary. In some cases, the child is the one that's first diagnosed, and then it's actually the parents that benefit because they also have been battling, for example, recurrent sinusitis, and, and we have seen that. We're, we're also um, 
in the it, we have the advantage as as allergists and immunologists to care for patients with asthma and passive smoke is smoke exposure is something that we always have to consider. We always ask in our in our history, but a child with asthma and passive smoke exposure, and even a child with with passive smoke smoke exposure alone, will have uh, the likelihood of having more recurrent infections. So those are the types of conditions that I I really think about when um, I'm thinking about the differential in in a patient with recurrent infections. Okay, and do you spend time talking about the? Uh indoor air quality or environmental um, triggers inside the home that may also be contributing as well? Absolutely. So every child, we, we talk about um, the the home where we ask, you know, our, our common questions as allergists. So we're asking about exposure to any pets. Um, we're asking about other factors. So if a child has severe dust allergy and they have wall-to-wall carpeting and, and curtains and fans and they're not changing the, the air conditioning filters, obviously we would, we would ask all those questions and just help guide our, our, um, our workup. Okay. Now, when you do determine that there are factors inside the home, such as cigarette smoke, that may be contributing to the, the pattern of infections, um, you know, this can be a, a challenging conversation for any of us to have with families. Uh, do you have any tips on, on how you have this important conversation? This can be challenging. I actually, when, when I have a history, when I have a child that comes in and, and the parents, especially when the parents are very concerned and, and the parents actually admit and they say, you know, um, I'm, I'm a smoker, but I, I smoke outside. So again, I, I feel as an allergist um, and immunologist, I have the opportunity to address many factors that that can contribute. And when the parents, you know, raise the the question, you know, and they admit, okay, well, I smoke, but I smoke outside. I I really I, I pause and I take the time to talk to them. The first thing I ask them is, do you want to quit? And almost always they'll say yes, and I'll say, this is great. We're here to support you. And the first thing I'll say is I truly recommend changing your behavior because when, meaning, if you're used to getting up in the morning and you have your coffee and a cigarette, I need you to change that because that, that changing behavior is the most important and the most difficult part. And you'd be surprised how many people are open to it. And then you can, you can say, you know, there's other options, there's treatment options, but just opening the door to that conversation, albeit difficult at times, it's amazing how many people you can help. I agree, and, and thanks for sharing that. I I have had similar experiences. I think that if you just approach it in a in a reasonable way, and you have the conversation, and you let them know that this is a, a factor that's likely contributing, I also find that most people are very receptive to that conversation. Now let's get back to so we, you know we're you know approaching probably the halfway point of our conversation here, and we haven't even really talked about primary immune deficiency yet. So you know for these these kids that have recurrent infections, there's a whole host of other things to consider before you even really think about the underlying immune system. So let's delve into that. And you mentioned before, but I'd like for you to summarize as we kind of get into that aspect of it. What are some red flags that really catch your attention right out of the gate that says, uh oh, I believe this child likely has an underlying immune deficiency. So early in life and even as, as they're toddlers and older, failure to thrive in any child for me is the, is the biggest red flag. Um, a child that has chronic diarrhea, we have many children that present with mild failure to thrive, but the parents say, you know, he's never had, he or she has never had normal bowel movements. That's a concern. That's, that's definitely a red flag. Again, a child with recurrent skin lesions that just aren't getting better, that's been diagnosed 
with eczema in the first year of life, but they're on appropriate treatment, it's not getting better. It may not be eczema. It might be something more. So those, just in general terms, those are really the, the biggest red flags that I would look for. A child that has been diagnosed with autoimmune disease or early in life, this is something that we, we never really talked about before, but autoimmune disease, especially more than one, would be a reason to look at the immune, immune uh, like to properly evaluate the the immune system, because it may be that there's a primary immunodeficiency responsible for everything. And how would you characterize you know, the antibiotic-resistant organisms? Um, does that also fall in this category of automatic suspicion, or is that a, sort of a different entity when you think about this? For me, it's a it's a different entity. I, I think again, we we live um, we're in a society right now where because of the overuse of antibiotics, we really have we kind of put ourselves into a bad situation with that respect. But again, here as, as allergists, we have the opportunity for things like removing labels from penicillin allergy, which I think is, is incredibly important because if we're using less broad spectrum antibiotics, I think that that's going to be um, very helpful in the long run. Yes, I agree as well. All right. Now I want to pick your brain and I think our listeners would love to hear your, your input on this as well. How do you think about the immune system? It, I mean, it's this overwhelmingly complex system that we all have. But do you compartmentalize it in any way when you think through this and evaluating patients? And, and how do you do so? So I really think there's different ways to think about the immune system. And, and I will be the first to tell you, if, if you simplify it in your mind and you simplify it in your differential, it's not going to look as complex and as overwhelming. So I think, that, A, that's really important. I am going to go through today, I'm going to talk about just how I compartmentalize based on the type of infection, because you can do it by age of onset, that there are many ways to do this, but for me, you know, and, and as I'm teaching fellows and we're talking, I say, okay, let's talk about the type of infection. So you have a child that's presenting with sinopulmonary infections. They're having pneumonias, otitis, they're having uh, sinusitis. We have to consider that there could be a problem with antibody production or antibody function. So that's, that's the first. Then I think about, well, if they're coming in with recurrent viral or fungal infections, I'm going to think more about a T-cell um, a T cell problem, either in production again or in, in, in its function. With failure to thrive or a child that has had all kinds of infections, bacterial, viral, fungal, I think more about a combined immunodeficiency. And an example obviously would be SCID. As far as patients with recurrent infections that are associated with or due to staph or aspergillus or someone that has a liver abscess, you need to think more about your, your phagocytic and your neutrophil uh, disorders. And then the, the next that I would think about is, you know, a child with re recurrent or has had one episode of meningococcal meningitis, we need to consider at that very first time whether there could be a terminal complement problem. So that's the way I compartmentalize so that it helps in guiding the type of workup I do. Because when you evaluate a, any child, you really want to have more of a guided workup. I don't, want to, I don't like to just throw everything up and see what comes back because then that is not always helpful. Oh, thank you. That's great. So I'm hearing from you, really, it all starts with the details, the detailed clinical history. What are the types of infections, the pattern of infections? And then you take that and compartmentalize essentially into five different categories, B-cell, T-cell, combined, innate immunity, and then complement. Um, I think that's a great way to go about it. 
And obviously there's infections that are not going to fall into those, and, and we're learning more and more, and immunology is really at a time of rapid growth and explosion. But these are just the, the five general categories, and then anything that may fall outside, then, then we may have to consider a different workup depending on the presentation. Okay. Now, you know, this this is a loaded question, but um, bear with me, and I'd love to, you know, hear your take on it. But can you give us a broad overview of the types of immune deficiency within these categories, uh, and including those that are the most common that we're going to see among children? Absolutely. So if we start with antibody disorders, uh, disorders like transient hypogammaglobulinemia of infancy is common and will often resolve uh, by the age of four. Selective IgA deficiency, which is one of the more common um, immune deficiencies, and, and in those patients, they may be completely asymptomatic or they may have, you know, recurrent um, sinopulmonary infections. X-linked agammaglobulinemia or Bruton's agammaglobulinemia, which is also known as XLA, is um, less common than the, the previous two, but very important, especially to be able to identify as early in life as possible. And then in the second decade of life, children with common variable immunodeficiency um, will also have sinopulmonary infections. When we shift a little bit towards uh, T cells, disorders like 22Q11 deletion or uh, DeGeorge syndrome will have, they can have problems with, with thrush or candidal infections. And then the combined immunodeficiencies, we all know about SCID, which is severe combined immunodeficiency. I think right now we are at, at a time which is very exciting because all 50 states in the U.S. are actually screening, newborn screening in some form for, for SCID, and, and that will help us identify these patients early, earlier than, than ever and really help improve um, their prognosis long-term because it, it can lead to earlier treatment and, and things like bone marrow transplant. So that is very exciting. Um, there are forms of hyper-IgM, which can be uh, combined um, as well, and those patients will frequently have sinopulmonary infections. Um, some of them will have, uh, you know, enlarged lymph nodes. Um, when we shift to neutrophil disorders, so chronic granulomatous disease is the most, I think, um, commonly discussed, but it, it is very important because these are the patients that have, you know, problems with staph, with aspergillus, very strange, any, any fungal infection that, that um, doesn't seem to improve or they have different fungus, uh, fungi. And then liver abscess. So these are the patients that present in that in that way. And then shifting to the complement disorders, you know, if a child has meningococcal meningitis, and and I tell our pediatric residents um, and our fellows, if if you come once with meningococcal meningitis, you need to consider terminal complement deficiency, and you you really have to order the CH50 because that's going to be life changing. Nobody. Um, really deserves to have to have more than one episode to have that test ordered. So we could talk about this for a long time, but I think in general terms, you know, that is just broad overview of, of the more common um, immunodeficiencies that, that we see. Yeah, it's great. And I agree. I mean, each one of those could probably be a, a podcast episode in itself. And I look forward to having you back on to delve into a couple of those more in more detail. And for the listeners, we're going to put some links um, on the website uh, for the CME credit to, that will give you some further information regarding those as well. So, but that's a great overview. Now, 
over the last you know decades, we've really seen um, a, a huge increase in the number of different tests that can be obtained, including you know genetic testing for potential mutations. Uh, do you think that most patients who present with a history of recurrent infection should have a, you know a huge number of tests ordered initially, or is there a more streamlined approach that you recommend? So here it's really going to depend on the clinical scenario. If if you have a child that's acutely ill in you know the intensive care unit it probably is going to be more more helpful to order as many tests as possible to get to the root of the problem at that moment. If you have a child that comes to your office with recurrent infections but is otherwise thriving, you have more of an opportunity to order some screening tests and then follow or observe if it's likely you're going to have that, you know, the the opportunity to do that over time. Um, again, I don't like to just have one thing that I order on everybody, I really think it's going to depend on the patient and their presentation. And I think that that's the most helpful for, for most patients. Not every patient is going to need all of the tests that you would order on a child who is acutely ill in the intensive care unit, for example. So I think this is the fourth or fifth time where I've heard you really um, mention the importance of using the specific clinical history to, to guide uh, the rest of the evaluation. Um, yeah, I, I agree 100% can't emphasize that enough. And what would you say is the downside in ordering as many tests surrounding the immune system as possible? What what kind of bad things happen when that occurs? Okay, there's many things. First of all, due to the small size of many children, we're limited in the number of tests. So that's that's one thing that sometimes we have to remind the parents, but we really can't just get every test that you would want to do in an adult because the reality is they're small. More importantly, running tests that are not consistent with their presentation make give you abnormal values that not only are not helpful, but it's more confusing because then you may have to explain, okay, why is this test coming back when it doesn't have anything to do with the clinical presentation? And, and that, we all know, we don't like to run tests unless there's a reason to run them because you can have abnormals that mean absolutely nothing and they confuse you and don't help you and may actually guide you along the wrong path. So th those are really the big reasons that I just, I don't like to just order as many tests as possible. I don't think that that's helpful for anybody. And do values on some of these tests change according to age? Absolutely. So we have age, right? We have age um, normal values that, and that's one thing I would recommend for any uh, clinician. If you have a test that comes back, especially, I, I will say, if I have a very high index of suspicion and everything looks normal, I like to just make sure that the reference values, the normals are, are, are the correct because they need to be according to the age of the patient. And, and those are well-published and those are available. So it's important to make sure that you're looking at apples and apples and not apples and oranges. Yeah, and in your experience, do the laboratories always provide the proper reference range according to age, or is that something that needs to really be looked at very carefully? They don't. And, and so I, I gave you the example of someone you have a high index of suspicion, ensuring that those those normals are, are correct, but I will give you the opposite side. If you get back an abnormal and then it turns out, well, they use the wrong age reference, well, that's important, and that happens as well. So I will tell you, I, I tend to double-check, especially if I'm getting back abnormals, maybe when I'm not as, as highly suspicious, but definitely if I'm getting normal values when I'm very suspicious about um, a particular disorder. Okay. And, and how often in your experience do you think you're looking at the same piece of paper and the same information as somebody else who ordered the test, and yet you come up with a completely different sort of interpretation of that? It may be 5 to 10% of the time, but that's not a small number. I think that, that it's worth, you know, taking the time and, and really looking. Sure. Okay. 
Now, um, let's go back to sort of a more specific example. And you mentioned that one of the more common presentations of um, immune deficiency would be recurrent sinopulmonary infections. Uh, what would be a good baseline starting point in regards to the diagnostic evaluation for that type of patient? So I would start with, with probably the simplest test that almost everybody gets, which is a CBC with diff. And here I, I really do look um, not only overall at, at their white blood cell count, but I'm looking at their absolute lymphocyte number. That is very important and very helpful. You can also have just total immunoglobulin, so your serum um, uh, IgG, A, M, and E, because that can be helpful. And it, this isn't a test, but again, going back to looking at the height and, and weight and how the child is growing, I think that as a screen, those are, are really important. As we move on, we can look more specifically at their response to vaccines. Uh, we can look at the, the lymphocytes, so we can take a good look at the numbers of B cells, of T cells, of NK cells, and those all will, will help guide us um, on whether or not there, there's a need for further evaluation. But the specific antibody to vaccines tells us about antibody function, which is important. Um, the lymphocyte numbers tell us about the numbers, and if the numbers are very low, then the function and the, and the quantity, the total immunoglobulins, may not um, have a chance to be normal. So I feel like every piece is important, but for screening purposes, a CBC with diff, total immunoglobulins, and taking a good look at the, at the growth um, of the child are, are a good starting point. And what vaccines do you typically evaluate, or which antigens do you look at in regards to response? For response to antigens, you can look at, uh, especially in the, the younger children below the age of two, tetanus, diphtheria, uh, and haemophilus influenza. Um, you can also look on, at, you can look at those same on, on and people like patients of any age, um, as well as pneumococcal. And if you are concerned, especially in this day and age of um, what's happening with measles in our country, you can look at. The, the levels of measles, mumps, and rubella to make sure that the patients are, are, um, that have been immunized have proper protection. Okay. And what, what if somebody isn't immunized? Uh, is there any practical way that you can assess immunoglobulin function in those patients? It's a little bit more of a challenge, but it's not impossible. If the, the blood type of the child is not AB, you're a, actually able to um, measure uh, isohemoglobinins to the blood group antigens. If they're positive, it's helpful. If it's negative, it may not be as helpful. Um, in these patients, I recommend obtaining at least total immunoglobulins, and then if the family is agreeable and um, they have an open mind, you know, you can challenge them with giving them vaccines with tetanus, diphtheria, uh, depending on the age, with uh, Hib, and then we have different pneumococcal vaccines that are also um, possible to administer the vaccine and then retest and, and see if there was a proper response, you know, four, four to eight weeks later. Okay, so you need to wait at least four weeks or so to, to allow them to mount the response to the vaccine. Absolutely. That's very okay. important. Okay. Now, um, when your suspicion, based upon the clinical history and your evaluation, um, takes you down the path of consideration for T-cell um, immune deficiencies, where's a good starting point in regards to the diagnostic testing that people should think about for those patients? So if you're concerned about T-cells, I usually start with the lymphocyte subset, so I'm looking at the numbers of T-cells, the total T-cells, and then specifically at CD4s and CD8s. Um, that will give you the quantity um, I, I will tell you that early on in my career, as, as, uh, 
as a young immunologist, we had a patient present um, with HIV in her teens, and it was actually congenital. So those are the patients that really kind of leave the mark on you. Like, I have never forgotten that patient. I'm a primary, you know, my primary immunodeficient patients are are really what I trained most in and I feel most comfortable with, but I never forget the secondary immunodeficiencies and HIV is something to keep in the back of your mind. So um, I think that looking at the T cell numbers can help guide you, not only for primary immunodeficiency patients, but also secondary immunodeficiency patients. And then we can also look at function of T cells by ordering response to mitogens. And I think that that also can give us valuable information. Great. Um, and then you mentioned the CH50 assay. What part of the immune system does that evaluate? So that's looking at the, the for any terminal complement disorder, and, and that's important because when that's uh, deficient, again, the patients can present with meningococcal meningitis, which is not something we, we want anyone to have to have, especially more than once. And then for completeness sake, when you're concerned about um, innate immunity or phagocytic dysfunction, what, what kind of tests would people think about? So there's uh, oxidative burst to look at neutrophil function. The gold standard now is, is dihydrorhodamine 1, 2, 3, and that's um, a flow assay that actually looks at the function of neutrophils. You know, and something as we, as we talk about this, it popped in my head. Do you see um, any changes to these laboratory values in a patient who's acutely ill? So say they're in the hospital setting and they're, they're battling an infection acutely and you try to obtain these. Are you going to get a different result than if they're otherwise you know, at a healthy point? That's a really good question. So obviously, if it's possible, it's better to have, you know, to have the opportunity to study them when they're, when they're healthier because when a child is very, very like critically ill um, or even dying, and we, and we see this, things can really, you know, it, it can affect your immune labs. But I, I always say I start, you're in a situation, you have to start where, where you are, and then if something doesn't seem right or it's very, it's very off, you may need to repeat it. And this is very common. This is not uncommon. So you just repeat the test and see, is it still consistent or have things improved? The child is healthier now or vice versa. When you had the first labs, they did, you know, they, they were not very abnormal, but now they're coming and they're very, very sick. You may see the opposite. So it's just following over time. I think when I first meet families, I tell them, you know, today is our first visit, but this is going to be a, probably a, a long relationship. And I'm going to follow you over time and observe and see how things change because our patients don't come, you know, come with a neon sign that says their diagnosis. It takes time. But if you have the option, obviously, it would be better to, to have the opportunity to study them when they're healthier, but that's not always possible. And when do you think about these more involved genetic tests? And before you order those, is there anything special that needs to be done, such as genetic counseling? Yes, and that's a really, that's, that's a great question. I think every immunologist will have their own response to this, but I, I do believe that if if I'm going to have genetic studies ordered or, or I'll order them, then I really want them to have the opportunity to discuss um, this with a genetic counselor. Because once I, I have, you know, the, the confirmation, let's say that, that I have a patient that the labs are, are abnormal and it's leaning me towards more of a, you know, a, a genetic cause, or I have a high suspicion, but the lab tests aren't helping me, I may order those tests, but I do like, I like for them to have the opportunity to discuss them. Because once you get the test back, it's very, it can be very daunting for the family. It can be very confusing. And, and 
it's important for them to have as much information as possible, especially when you're talking about um, a family who may consider having more children or a, a, you know, a late teen patient who may be considering starting a family. You really want to have as much information available to them as possible so that they can make informed decisions. Now, unfortunately, just due to time constraints, we're not going to be able to delve into the issues surrounding treatment of the various immune deficiencies, and that's a really complicated um, aspect as well. But we'll make sure that we put some information uh, and links on the website as well. Now, um, before we conclude uh, this wonderful conversation, I'd like to revisit a topic that you just brought up a few minutes ago, and that's in regards to uh, measles resurgence and uh, vaccine hesitancy, which, as you know, is has been listed as a top 10 global health threat by the World Health Organization for 2019. And we're seeing a resurgence of vaccine-preventable infections. I'd like to have you discuss how this really impacts those children or individuals who have underlying immune deficiency and who cannot receive vaccines because they're at risk of having um, infection from those. So what what impact does this vaccine hesitancy and decreased rates of immunization have on that cohort of patients with underlying immune deficiency? Yeah, this, this is, again, near and dear to my heart. I think as a pediatric immunologist, first of all, I truly believe in the safety and um, the efficacy of the vaccines that we have available. Um, as parents and medical professionals, we have the responsibility to protect our own children from infections um, that are preventable. And we also have the responsibility to help protect those who cannot receive the vaccine. So, you know, whether it's the young infant who is not old enough uh, and is exposed to pertussis because somebody, you know, wasn't vaccinated, um, I think that it's very important for the parents and grandparents, and that nowadays we are asking them to, to receive boosters. Uh, whether it's the immunocompromised patients, such as my patients with primary immunodeficiency, or even patients that are undergoing chemo for cancer, anyone that's immunocompromised, the herd immunity aspect is so important to protect us all. Um, I, I will share that when my brother, was 18 months old, he had pneumococcal meningitis. This was long before we had the vaccines available. And uh, he came very close to death. And I, I feel not only from my experience as a professional, but what we went through with my brother, you know, we have the opportunity to receive vaccines that will prevent these types of diseases. And we owe it to ourselves and to um, our, our children and obviously to the other people and all the patients who may not be able to receive vaccines, we're really relying on this herd immunity. I think that the return of measles really is a call for all of us to come back and as medical professionals take the time and address the need for vaccination. I think this is really important and it's 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 something that if we, we're not changing this path, there's going to be other diseases that will return. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, thank you for your thoughts on that. And I think it really hits home um, when you, you know, have the personal aspect of it and you take care of these patients as well or have family members who can't receive the vaccines. Well, you know, this was fantastic, and I can attest for our listeners, um, I, I think this was a wonderful conversation. We, co we covered a whole host of territory and, and different aspects of this, and this really was a great primer in regards to thinking through recurrent infections and uh, when to evaluate the immune system and how to do so. So thank you again for taking the time to be with us today. Is there anything else you'd like to add? You know, I think just as a pediatrician and parent, I think it's important to to have open and honest conversations um, and communication with 
uh, not only our our healthcare professionals and our medical team, but um, whenever as a as a physician or clinician you think about a child that presents with you know infections that don't seem right or the child's not thriving, or the parents are just overly concerned, just please keep in mind the possibility of a primary immune deficiency because they're really not as rare as as we all believe. And, and the patients, you know, the patients will not only benefit, but you can save their lives. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Information about credit claiming for this and other episodes can be found at education.aaaai.org forward slash podcasts. Credit claiming will be available for one year from the episode's original release date. Please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.